said. Amen. Let that be a lesson. If nobody sings that part, I will. <laughs> All right. If you would, before as we start here, if anybody wants to follow along, uh, the whole passages will be coming out of 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15, the whole chapter will just be there. Anybody's got their handy-dandy app or the Bible? Thank you, Lydia. All right. So here we are. Uh, seventh lesson that I've titled it, Worship Defines Us. Worship Defines Us. So, and this, when I say worship defines us, you have to see it in contrast to the popular opinion held by many in the world. Today, they would tell us what really defines you is your ethnicity or your self-assigned gender, your sexual preference. I'm not going into detail. Your financial wealth. So the prevailing narrative, the prevailing story says people are generally put in two categories. Oppressor, and I see a lot of oppressors by the definition, I'll give you in a minute, and the oppressed. They would say that the oppressors are so ingrained with their privilege that they can't even comprehend that they are oppressors. And with regard to the oppressed, there are subcategories, or they call it points of intersectionality. And the more boxes you can check, the more oppressed you are, the more genuine or the stronger the voice you have, and the, you have the privilege of divining everybody else. So, I'll give you an example. If you're black, if you self-identify as a woman but were born, the doctor pronounced you differently, if you have transvestite habits and you're poor, you are the most oppressed. And you have the strongest voice to define the rest of us. In contrast, if you're white, and if you're straight, if you have any money in your bank account, you are an oppressor. So, this plays to our sympathies, doesn't it? For in Christ, we want to fight for those that are oppressed. We want to make right the wrongs. Yet it's God's word that speaks forth the truth. It defines what wrong is. It defines what right is. It gives us guidance with regard to oppression. Not necessarily the person who has the greatest sense of suffering. Tonight I want to start with a different premise. I want to throw that one out and I want to say it's worship that defines us. Not intersectionality. It defines individuals. It defines nations. It defines families. So, to use some modern culture, or modern terminology, each people group is unified by a culture. And here you have to consider the root word to culture. Sounds strange to our ears, but the root word is cult. So that which we worship defines our actions and comes out in everything we do. We cannot hide it. You may have a confessed God, you may go to church on Sunday, and you may confess him, but it's your actions through the week that show who you're really worshiping. If left to ourself, we worship power. 
and we fear him who's the strongest. We are prone to worship personal peace and prosperity. In doing so, we sacrifice large chunks of our income to a retirement fund. We distance ourselves when we worship peace and prosperity. We distance ourselves from difficult situations. We retreat to the castle. You know the picture. Cars coming down the driveway. The garage door opens. The car goes in. The door closes. It's like a drawbridge crossing the moat, right? And we're all safe and secure in our own little castle. We drift into complacency regarding the world. For us to do something about the problem would threaten our personal peace and prosperity. So tonight, in the seventh lesson in the series, I want to talk about worship and how it defines us. It defines it, and what's, what this is based on is at our core, we're worshiping beings. Even the most devout atheist worships. God created Adam and Eve, put them in a garden to adore God to worship him. Their affections were corrupted. They sinned and sought to worship what? They didn't worship God. They worshiped self-glorification. For in eating the fruit, surely they would be like God. Right? They worshiped their autonomy. Surely they knew what was right or wrong. And God's ways were to be questioned because they were possibly wrong. Their descendants continued to worship all manner of things, and, this wor- and so this worship defined them. Here we must examine who or what we're worshiping, not in the form, not what we put the facade out, but in daily terms. And to that end, I'm going to look at King Saul and his manner of worship, both what was stated and what he was actually doing. So, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. A little context here. Saul has been anointed king. The prophet or the judge of the day was a retiring older man named Samuel. So you have the older Samuel who had anointed Saul the king. So here we start. Samuel also said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore, heed the voice of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him when he came out of Egypt. Listen carefully, please. Now go, attack Amalek, utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them. Kill both man and woman, infant, nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Catch your breath. All right. By the way, I'm not going to pick up why this command goes that way, but if somebody wants to talk to me afterward, I'd be glad to provide some other context why this genocide, right? But what I want to get to is the clarity of the command. Samuel, servant of God, anoints or sets Saul apart as earthly king. Though Saul was a head taller than all other men, yet his power to be king was going to come from, not his own strength, but obeying God. His weakness was also going to come from, if he tried to lead in his own strength, or through obedience to God. The command is given, go utterly destroy the Amalekites. 
I know this may break your heart, but I think you'll see the instruction was crystal clear. Verses 9, 4 through 9. So King Saul gathered all the people together. He numbered them at Telalim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek, and he lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Canaanites, Go, depart, get up, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you and them. For he showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So the Canaanites departed from the Amalekites, and Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havlia all the way to Shur with the edge of the sword. But, by the way, throughout this whole passage, as I read these verses, whenever you hear the word but, take note. But Saul and the people spared Agog, and the best of the sheep, the ox, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything, everything despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. Saul was a pragmatist. He was practical. He was a practical from a human perspective, but wicked from God's perspective. As a pragmatist, Saul listened to God's word, and then he decided, what parts should or should I not should not be obeyed? Saul saw himself as a god. He knew better. He knew how to correct God. And I'll tell you, we're prone to do the same. To show you how much of a pragmatist Saul was, two chapters earlier, Saul had a battle with the Philistines. Saul had a standing army of 3,000 men. His son Jonathan became a stench in their nose. You might remember he initiated a two-man attack against a, Ferris, against a, a Philistine garrison. The Philistines mounted a counterattack with 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and Saul only had 3,000 Israelites. And they were cowering, they were hiding in the caves, and their situation was getting worse and worse by the day. The Philistines were threatening. To complicate matters, the prophet Samuel said, Saul, hold your position for seven days. Wait, I will come and I will offer the sacrifice. The Philistines were threatening. Saul was incredibly practical. He was tired of waiting, but wanted the Lord's blessing even if he was in disobedience. So guess what he did as the pragmatist? He offers the sacrifice in a way that he thinks he will accomplish his ends. At the heart of biblical worship is a healthy fear of God, obedience to his word. Saul feared the Philistines more than God and was obedient to his own schemes and disobedient to God. Saul thumped him for his arrogance and disobedience. So, here the Amalekites, here with the Amalekites, Saul fools himself with practical obedience. Some of you are old enough and will remember this song, right? Practical obedience, practical obedience Partial obedience is disobedience. So this song exemplifies it. It says, I shot the sheriff, but I did not shoot the deputy. There's nobody else old enough to know that song? No, we know that song. 
All right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so when you hear that song, I shot the sheriff, but I did not shoot the deputy. Oh, partial obedience. I didn't shoot the deputy. But what are you known by? Shooting the sheriff, right? So remember this. Saul thought he could give partial obedience and say, look, I did the good part. Yeah, but you shot the sheriff, right? And this is what we do as well. We want to be known by the part we obeyed, not the part we disobeyed. All right? Now, back to the Am Amalekites. And Saul's attempt at obedience, partial obedience, or full disobedience. So, as you find yourself dealing with sin in your life, and, or in your children's life, remember the telltale signs when you find yourself in sin, or they're, when they're in sin, there's a false god. There's an idol. We've constructed an idol, they've constructed an idol, and they think obeying that idol, those desires, will be pleasurable. They'll find happiness. And obeying God or obeying you, they won't find happiness. You gotta, when there's disobedience, when there's fear, you've got to find that idol and smash it. So, have a look at some of Saul's idols. Verses 10 through 15 in the same chapter. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned his back on following me. This is God speaking to him. And has not performed my commandments. And Saul, Samuel cried out to the Lord all night. So Samuel the prophet rose early in the morning to meet Saul. And it was told, it was told where Samuel, where Saul went. It said, Saul went to Carmel, a city, and indeed, listen to what he's doing. He set up a monument for himself. He has gone around, passed by the way to Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said, Oh, blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandments of the Lord. Samuel says, what is that bleating I hear in my ears? Bleating of the sheep I hear in my ears. What is that lowing of ox of which I hear? And Saul, King Saul responds and says, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared them. The best of the sheep and the ox, guess why they spared them? To sacrifice to the Lord. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. Saul is absolutely serving himself. He's serving his desires. He's desiring to build his kingdom. Yet, he has the gall to say he's obeying God. He's maintaining a form of worship of God, but he's only performing these duties that fit his purpose. Saul is slippery. By the way, our hearts are slippery too, aren't they? Instead of obeying God utterly, or obeying God and utterly destroying all, he says that he has kept the sheep to sacrifice God. Surely, God, you like a good sacrifice, right? This is justifying his disobedience. Instead of taking responsibility for his disobedience, Saul blames the people. And so much for being a leader. Saul's last dodge is to repeat God's word back to him and says, I surely utterly destroyed them, kind of, right? Saul was not serving God. He was serving himself, and this comes out in spades. After battling with the Amalekites, Saul is setting up a monument to himself. Saul was enamored with self-worship, 
and this is typical. All right, we might not build an obelisk that's uh, tall, but think about the idols we construct and the monuments we construct. How many young men spend hours in the gym to bulk up to show forth their glorious biceps? How many young women follow the latest fads and take hours painting their face, dyeing their hair that others would acknowledge their glory? How many men spend a lifetime looking for that big buck? That's another word for deer. With the 12 points on the rack, or dedicate their life to climb the corporate ladder, fill a bank account full of cash for their own glory. How many women work tirelessly for that perfect home, for those perfect children, that all would see their glory? We are tempted to build monuments to ourselves. It wasn't only Saul. Unless you're confused, I'm not against gym memberships. I'm not against nice clothing or hunting or diligent work or comfortable homes or obedient children. I'm not against these. But these are not the monuments, not the focus of our worship. Serve God first, wholly and perfectly, completely, and see if he doesn't bless you with these other things. The biceps have escaped me, so I can't, can't confess that one. Samuel was not a man who feared God. So guess what? He feared everybody else. Sorry, Samuel was a man who feared God. Saul was not. Samuel did not fear men. He was as bold as a lion. We sang that today in one of the Psalms, being bold as a lion. Think about what Samuel the prophet does. He confronts him. Saul, he speaks like one with authority. He speaks like Jesus. Clearly listen as I read the next set of verses, clearly listen to his confrontation and King Saul's pitiful excuses. Again, they all start with the word, but. So, verses 16 through 21. Then Samuel said to Saul, be quiet. We could say it in modern vernacular, couldn't we? Shut up, right? Shut up. And I tell you, I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And then... King Saul said, speak on. You can imagine he lost a little bit of uh, vigor there, right? And Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, you were not the head of the tribes of Israel, and did not the Lord anoint you as king over Israel? And now he sent you on a mission. He said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? Samuel said to Saul, But, but, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on a mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back King Agog, king of the Amalekites. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took the plunder, sheep, an ox and the best of the things which I have, which they should have utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord. So, see how he's confronting him? And Saul, King Saul, is blathering on with all kinds of excuses. And you see how he's rebuking him. Be quiet. Saul was once little in his own eyes, but now he's risen up and he's glorified himself to enormous proportions.